Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Scale of one to 10. 10 being I floated into church this morning. One being I think I want to cuss you out right now and I don't know why. One to 10? 10? Somebody said one. We'll pray for you after this. Okay. Two. Okay. All right. All right. Well, here's great news Jesus is here. And he could take your one. And he could turn it on. I'm not going to do that. Stand to your feet. We're going to read it on our God's word together. We've been in this series in the book of Acts called The Movement. Everybody say The Movement. We're looking here at the book of Acts. We started at the beginning of the year. We took a little hiatus and we're jumping back in and we're looking at this extraordinary move of God that happened with these very ordinary people who got supernaturally empowered by God's spirit and quite literally changed the world. And we're dialoguing on the refrain that if God did it before in the book of Acts and we've seen him do it again throughout modern history, what would it look like if he did it here and now? right here in South Florida, right there in Guyana, wherever you're watching online, what could it be like if God were to move? Last week, we looked in Acts chapter 11 at the church in Antioch, this ragtag group of disciples, ordinary people who were first called Christians, these little Mashiachs, these little Christ. They were first called Christians at Antioch. And we dialogued on the question of what does it actually mean to be a Christian? If you missed it, you can check it out on our podcast or our YouTube channel. This week, as we jump into Acts chapter 12 and we begin to near the end, next week is the final week of our movement series, I want to talk about a distinguishing mark of these early disciples, these Christians that they are now called, that if we want to see, and we do, a book of Acts church in the 21st century, this is key. Would you like to know what it is? All three of y'all. Perfect. Well, I'm going to tell you anyways, I'm a talk back preacher. So if you yell at me, amen, hallelujah, preach it, white boy, I don't care what you say. Just say something because it helps me. Amen? All right. We're going to be in Acts 12. You can flip there in your Bible. We're going to start in verse 1. While we are there, football season is nearing and upon us. How many of you are excited about this fact? Training camp is happening. Tua threw a deep ball. Apparently, he can do it at least once in practice. So it gives me hope for the Miami Dolphins in the future. Please, Lord, you see our long-suffering. Have mercy. Acts chapter 12, if you're ready, say, let's do this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Now he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. By the way, beware of people-pleasing because it can lead you to do some crazy things. That one was for free. He came back and after arresting Peter, put him in prison during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover, he handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, intending to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5, this is key. Now Peter was kept in prison, but the church, what does it say, was earnestly We're going to come back to that. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up. Now, why could not the angel have been gentle? I don't know how many of y'all are married to someone that is a deep sleeper, but that does not go well. If I were to slap my wife on the side in the middle of the night, I would be dead. 
But apparently that's how angels roll. Peter gets up, the chains fall off his wrist. The angel says, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter does it. Wrap your cloak around you. Peter does it. He follows him out of the prison. But Peter thinks he's in a vision. They pass the first and the second guards and come to the iron gate leading to the city. It opens for them by itself. They go through it. When they had walked the length of the street, the angel vanishes. Peter wakes up and he's like, oh, snap. I just broke out of prison. He says, now I know without a doubt the Lord sent his angel, rescued me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. What an interesting and I hope inspiring passage we find this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, speak. And call us to be fully who you've created us to be from the very beginning. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five as you find your seats. If you're online, you can give a high five to your dog or your cat. If you have a cat, pray for it and lay hands on it because we know that all dogs go to heaven, but we don't say that about cats. Not the point, not the point, not the point. I'm just saying it's true. This is a vitally important chapter. You say, John, you say that every week. I, I do. But this is a vitally important chapter chapter. See, this whole book of Acts story, this whole incredible movement of God amongst the people of God, it begins in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem with our buddy Peter, and God is using Peter, and Peter's kind of raw, and he's a little bit unfiltered, but God can use raw and unfiltered people. Amen? And so God is using Peter, and it's incredible, but in Acts chapter 11, we're reintroduced to this upstart disciple named Saul or Paul. And as a matter of fact, the rest of the book of Acts will actually follow along in the ministry of this man, Paul. But there's this curious moment. Antioch just happened in chapter 11. You're seeing the writing on the wall. You're watching it begin to happen. And it's almost like if you're watching a TV show and you're right at the climax of the action. And it says, meanwhile, in, and it goes back and it cuts to another scene. This is Luke's meanwhile in Jerusalem moment. All the rest is about to be about Paul, and it begs the question, why did God inspire Luke to go back and talk about Peter one last time? Well, because God loves us, and because God knows us, and because God wants to help us, and because he ultimately, I think, wants to show us something about humanity, about you and I, that is the same back then with them, that has not changed much. Namely, we are so easily impressed by Herod. We're so easily impressed by earth power. My wife Nancy and I have two children. Our oldest, who's named Liam, is about to turn six years old. And I remember, this was probably a year plus ago, I remember it was early one morning and it was one of those rare South Florida mornings with a thick fog covering the ground. We don't get that a ton if you live out in the Northeast. That is your life. Uh, but we had this, there was this thick fog and, and my son woke up in the morning and he's just like transfixed at the window looking at this thing just looking at it. And so we're going around, I'm preparing breakfast. It actually worked out great because he was focused on something, not running around like he normally does full of energy. He was just looking out the window, mesmerized by this thick fog. And, and we go through the morning and I get him dressed and ready to go to school. And we, we get all set and we uh, open up the garage door and he walks outside into the mist and he turns around at me and his eyes are huge. And he says, dad, it's raining in slow motion. 
Dad, it's raining in slow motion. I was like, what a creative way to describe fog. I was like, well, actually, biologically, never mind. Yes, it is, son. Isn't that amazing? God can do anything. Because that's what preachers do, right? It's raining. Liam, my boy, was so impressed with this earth reality. But it's not just Liam, and it's not just five-year-olds, almost six-year-olds. It's the propensity of humanity, despite all the realities of the cosmos and all the things we know about space and galaxies and the new telescopes and imagery, despite all the incredibleness that we can just see with our eyes out there that could point to some sort of eternal component out there, we get so easily impressed with earth stuff, don't we? We get so impressed with the King Herods of our day. And this matters because if we continue to be stuck in our propensity to put our focus on earth things, we will live in perennial disappointment. Because earth power and earth stars, they rise and fall. One hit wonders and famous athletes Hollywood stars, whether you're talking about Joe Paterno or Harvey Weinstein or R. Kelly or Jimmy Swagger, these once earth titans all fall short and it all falls down. And I believe part of what Luke is doing here, and I feel very strongly that God has something in this passage for our church family this morning. Because I believe what Luke is doing here is he's inviting us into an alternate reality. He's inviting us into living a different way. Namely, what if we stopped getting impressed with Herod and we started getting impressed with God? I've got one big idea, one core thought. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this one down. Here it is. The power of Herod is nothing compared to the power of God when you tap into it in prayer. The power of Herod, this king that we'll talk about, is nothing compared to the power of God when you tap into it in prayer. Has anybody experienced that in this room? Can I get an amen? Okay, that was not a very good amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. Point number one, stop being impressed with Herod. Verse one, it was about this time King Herod arrested some of the followers of Jesus. He kills James, he takes Peter, and he intends to put him on trial after the Passover, and he puts him behind all of these guards, four, uh, four to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. How many soldiers in total? Y'all math majors out there, 16, math is fun. I'm an English major, I just wanted to make y'all do it. 16, see here's the thing, what I need us to understand, and we're obviously not living in first century reality, so we might not get this, is that our boy Herod is strong. Herod is strong. Now, Herod is not uh, necessarily a, it's not someone's first name. The Herodians were a, a sort of power brokers in the early generations. They sort of sat in between Rome, which was the occupying power that kind of ran the majority of the known world, and the Herods, or the Herodians, there was Herod the Great, and there was Herod Agrippa, and there was Herod Antipas. There were all of these Herods, but the Herods would sort of sit under Rome over the Jewish people. One of their titles was they were the king of the Jews, that was one of the titles for these Herodians, and they did indeed have power. 
If you remember the very beginning of the true gospel story, the narrative of Jesus, there was this Herod called Herod the Great. And when he heard from these wise men that there was this Messiah, this king that was going to be born, he was so freaked out and so paranoid and such an egomaniac that he went ahead and ordered an edict to have all babies murdered in an effort to stop baby Jesus from becoming the Messiah. This was the grandfather of our character. That was Herod the Great. Now his son Herod Antipas, who was the next Herod in line, was the one who killed John the Baptist, if you remember that story. We finally come to our character here. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa, following the lineage of his forefathers, kills an innocent man named James. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but if you felt like you had some family baggage, this joker beats you. Like, this is a family of deeply destructive power. Herod is strong. Herod has power. Herod has clout. And apparently he is longing to be impressive and to please other people with that. It says that Herod took James and he has him killed and, and then he sort of by, by happenstance ends up seizing Peter and he, when, he, when he sees that the people like what happened with James, he's like, well, man, let, let me run that back. Let me do that again. And so he takes another innocent man planning to most likely do the same thing to him as well. People pleasing leads us to do dangerous, horrible, crazy, toxic things. And we have this tendency to be impressed with Herod. I remember a couple years ago, this is maybe almost a decade ago now, I had the opportunity to, to work for a charity foundation that was led by a, a billionaire couple, and, and it was a pretty wild story. And, and, and this guy was a business mogul, and he had all these impressive things, and he international business, and he owned sports teams, and he did all this stuff. And, and yet, if you would have seen him walk into God's Chicken, your neighborhood Chick-fil-A, you would have had no idea. You would have had no clue. Like, he didn't dress super impressive. He didn't talk super impressive. He didn't look super impressive. And it's one of the interesting realities of people that often are very impressive and secure. They really don't care what you think about them. And so they're not trying to impress. But it's so interesting how every wiring within us pushes us in that direction. Point number one, stop being impressed with Herod. You're like, John, how would I know? And obviously I'm using Herod as a metaphor. You don't have a friend named Herod in your life. But, but how would I know if I'm being impressed by Herod? You can often tell you're caught up being impressed with people because you spend your life trying to be impressive. It's one of the indicators. You're like, how would I know if I'm caught in this trap? You can tell if you're obsessed with being impressed by people because you spend your life trying to be impressive. I was looking through quotes, and I stumbled on a quote from Will Smith, which I liked. He said, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people who don't care. And then he slapped the guy who wrote the quote down, I'm pretty sure. Is that too soon? Too soon? Yeah? I'll keep on moving. Stop being impressed with Herod before I get myself in trouble. Point number one, stop being impressed with Herod. Instead, point number two, start being impressed with God. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's good. Stop being impressed with Herod. Start being impressed with God. Let's get to the jailbreak. Peter's in prison. Church is praying for him. And the night before, most likely this is the night before his death, to be clear. We know what he did with James. The night before he's going to come to trial, an angel shows up 
He's in between chains. He's with 16 guards. He's got all this thing going on. The angel takes him out without even a scuffle. It's a holy jailbreak. Herod is strong. It's true. It's historically and empirically true. And yet God is stronger. This week, I I went down a rabbit hole of sports themes, as uh, I'm sure you're very surprised by. And uh, I stumbled on the story of Corey Benjamin. Anybody know who Corey Benjamin is? How many basketball fans? He's an NBA guy. One person knows who Corey, okay, two people, there we go. All right, let me me share with you about Corey Benjamin. I don't know nothing about basketball, but I know about this. Corey Benjamin was heralded to be the replacement for Michael Jordan the year after Jordan retired in Chicago. He he was this incredible college basketball player. I mean, they were talking big things about Corey Benjamin. He was dominant in college basketball, and he looked like he was going to be dominant in the NBA. And so as Jordan rode off into the sunset in retirement and Scottie Pippen was on the way out, the Chicago Bulls were like, we got our guy to hang our hat on. It's Corey Benjamin. But Corey Benjamin also thought, yeah, I'm your guy to hang your hat on. And so he decided it would be a good idea to talk trash to the GOAT. He called up Michael Jordan, and Jordan was like, hey, I just want to congratulate you. You know, I just want, I want to wish you well, Chicago Bulls, blah, blah, blah. And Corey Benjamin starts running his mouth, and he's like, oh, man, I appreciate that, but I don't need your luck. Like, I'm, I'm Corey Benjamin. I'm younger than you. Matter of fact, I could beat you in one-on-one right now. True story. Michael Jordan was like, okay, cool. And one day at practice, guess who rolled up to practice? Michael Jordan, this is a true story. Michael Jordan rolls up to practice, and he's like, hey, Corey, you're going to get your shot. Let's go. They said Michael Jordan didn't even take up his warm-up. He didn't even take off his warm-up uh, joggers. He kept long pants on and played him in one-on-one and smoked him. I mean, absolutely destroyed him. I saw Corey Benjamin trying to justify it in an interview. He's like, well, I mean, it started off really bad. Like, he was up nine to one on him. Michael Jordan was. He's like, it started bad, but I came back, and Jordan was like, I felt bad for the kid. <laughs> He destroyed him. Corey Benjamin ends up having a very, very minimal career in the NBA, and none of you know who he is today. What's my point? My point is that Herod was strong, but Herod is the Corey Benjamin to God's MJ. Like, you don't mess with the goat. You don't mess with the goat. Some of you are like, I'm not exactly tracking. One guy's tracking. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's so tempting to be impressed with ourselves. It's so tempting to believe our own fan mail that we wrote ourselves or we got from our mom. It's so tempting to be so impressed with earth stuff and to neglect the fact that the one who has true power is not based here on earth. He's, it's God. As I was studying this and reading, I, I was sort of reminded that it sounded really familiar to me. And I'm like, Did, was Peter in prison another time? And sure enough, if you remember, earlier in our sermon series, in Acts chapter 4, this is Peter's second prison break. You think following Jesus is boring, man. You're not following right. This is Peter's second prison break at the hands of angelic protection. The first time the apostles get thrown in prison, it was the religious leaders of the Jews the first time, and they were there, and they're like, man, we got we to gotta deal with this, and so they throw all the apostles in jail, and in the middle of the night, an angel shows up, breaks them out of prison, they're like, oh, and they're like, just, just go preach in the synagogue, and so the Jewish leaders come the next morning, they're like, all right, bring the prisoners out, and the guards are like, uh, about that, we don't have them, and they're out there preaching. I, I, I'm imagining that Herod is sitting there, because we know he had the egomaniac streak of his family, what's up with 16 guards for one ex-fisherman prisoner? 
Weird, right? I'm convinced Herod's like, man, y'all leaders can't even keep one little prisoner there, but I'm Herod and no one breaks out of Herod's prison. Buh. Except God. Like, I, I, love, I love this flex that Luke lays out in Acts chapter 12 as he clearly communicates, hey, you might have impressive dominant forces on this earth, but just to be clear, they can't hold a candle to God. This angel doesn't have to fight with guards. This angel doesn't have to move against guards. Like, God shows up, the power of God shows up, and it's done before it even started. Like, it's game over before it even begins. Herod is strong, but God is... No contest. Corey Benjamin, game's over before it even began. Start being impressed with God. Listen to what the scripture says about who our God is. Psalm 97, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Psalm 147, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He brings out the starry host one by one, calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and his mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. And Jeremiah says, ah, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. We sang it this morning, come alive in the name of Je This is a house of miracles. Friends, it's more than just platitudes. It is who our God is. And he was like that yesterday, and he's still like that today, and he's going to be like that forever. And that, amen, and that's some of our stories. Stop being impressed with Herod. What if we stopped getting impressed with Herod and we started getting impressed with God? Now, up to this point, this seems very theoretical and esoterical, and you're like, hey, amen. How would I even know? Like, how would I know if I'm more impressed with Herod, earth stuff, earth power, earth realities, than I am with God? And I think this is why Luke makes a point very clear and explicit. Because you can tell how impressed you are with God by the way that you engage or don't engage in prayer. It's sort of the litmus test for, am I, am I basing my, my potency in my life on earth stuff or heaven stuff? Well, which one do you call on more? Earth stuff or heaven stuff? Herod is strong and God is stronger but we only access his power when we bathe things in prayer. Which leads us to point number three, pray earnestly. Everybody say earnestly. Pray earnestly. Peter gets broken out of prison, verse 12, when this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were doing what? Praying. Verse 5, we were told they, they did not stop to earnestly or fervently pray for Peter. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't just a little moment. These, these brothers and sisters were having a prayer vigil. Some of us come from other traditions where you had prayer vigils. You're like, your, your parents were like, listen, you went to drug church. You got drugged to church. And your parents were like, you're not going to eat. You're not going to sleep. You're just going to sit here and pray. And you're like, God, rescue me. That was your prayer, right? They're sitting there in this all-night prayer meeting. It's so one of the things I love about the body of Christ that it's not just American because we are not great at this. You go over to Africa, man, they'll pray. You go over to Central Asia, they will pray. You go to Latin America, good luck having dinner. You're in a prayer meeting all night long. These jokers prayed. 
And then Peter shows up. Verse 13, he knocks at the door and a servant girl named Rhoda, she comes to answer the door. She recognizes his voice and she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it. This is awkward. She's like, oh my God! She runs away. Peter's like, uh, guys, I'm out here. Jail broke. Legal fugitive. Please let me in. She goes back. She tells the disciple. Now, I hope this gives you hope for your own life because listen to how this thing goes down. These jokers are praying earnestly, fervently, with duration, ongoing prayers, and then their prayer gets answered. Rhoda's like, oh my goodness, leaves them at the door, goes back to tell the disciples, and the disciples respond with, of course, because we are filled with faith that God would answer. Is that what they do? What do they do? They're like, Rhoda, you're either high or delusional. That can't be Peter. This is what they say. That's an angel. Translation, Peter's dead. Whew. These are not superheroes of the faith right here, y'all. These are ordinary people. They say, no, it must just be his angel. Peter keeps knocking. They open the door and see him, verse 16. They're astonished. Peter motions with his hand, shh, I'm a fugitive. Tell James, pieces out. He goes in the morning. They're looking for him. They can't find him. Herod takes all the guards who were supposed to watch him, kills him. End of the story, almost. Very, very interesting narrative here. What prayer does is prayer reveals who you're impressed with. Where your attention goes in prayer reveals who you're impressed with. I, I, we've been, I've been studying and kind of looking at different awakenings that have happened, movements of God that have happened throughout modern history because God continues to move in incredible ways and he can, and I'm praying he will, do it again. And so I stumbled on Charles Finney of the Second Great Awakening. Charles Finney was a, a preacher, a man of God that God used mightily. In. And in this story that I got stuck on, Charles Finney talked about his friend Daniel Nash. Some of you have no idea who Daniel Nash is. I had no idea. But Daniel Nash was the partner in ministry with Charles Finney. And what would happen is anywhere Charles Finney, they would get together, they would pray, Holy Spirit, where do you want us to go? Because that's what they did in Acts. God would put a city on their heart, and Charles Finney would not go. He would send Daniel Nash, who sometimes for weeks or a week or multiple weeks or months would just do focused prayer fasting and intercession in and over that city. And Charles Finney would show up, preach the gospel, and revival would break out. I mean, there are true historical accounts of entire jails and prison systems being, the prisoners go out and no one goes back in. Sometimes for years, God moved so mightily. All the prisoners just repented and no one wanted to commit crimes anymore. This is American history, guys. This is true. This is real stuff. And then Charles Finney stopped traveling. He stopped going. Finally, they, they, they came back around and they asked him, like, what happened? God moved so mightily in and through your life. And, we, you know, why did you stop? And he said, well, Daniel Nash died. This is what he said. He said, and I realized and knew that the power of revivals was the prayer that preceded it. And I knew I was done. Can you even imagine thinking like that? See, you can tell who you're impressed by based off of who gets your attention, who gets your time, who gets your energies. And if you and if I and if we want to see God move in our life in incredible light ways like we see here in the book of Acts, it is going to come when we devote ourself and our attention to prayer. God can do anything, so pray. God can do anything, so pray. God can do 
anything. So pray. And by the way, he doesn't even need perfect prayers. You see it in these disciples, like they're, they're, they're doing it. The, the verse that I find really helpful in verse five, it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It says they were earnest, but these prayers were not perfect, meaning they really meant it, but they didn't quite get it. They really meant it, and they were really doing it. This, by the way, this is the same word used in the scriptures for when Jesus prayed. It's also translated fervently. When Jesus sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane, same word. Jesus prayed earnestly, fervently. His disciples, guess what they do? They pray earnestly. They fell asleep in the beginning, but they got it by the end. They pray earnestly. They pray fervently. When it goes into James, it says that the fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Very indicting if you're like me and honestly you struggle with intercessory prayer because I'm like, I wish it just said the prayer. Doesn't say that. <laughs> it says the fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What we find from these disciples is that while they were not perfect, they were earnest in their prayer life. Here's my encouragement to you. Your prayer does not need to be perfect, but it does need to be earnest from the heart, full of passion, ongoing, we see this juxtaposition that Luke's makes sure before we jump into the ministry of Paul, we cannot miss with what's happening with Peter. Herod, earth power, has an army of soldiers, but Peter has an army of prayers. And Luke says, I wanna show you which one wins in the end. Thank you. Herod, I will say it again. Herod has an army of soldiers, but Peter has an army of prayers. And Luke says, I need you to know which one wins in the end. And when you cover situation in prayer, things happen. The power of Herod is nothing compared to the power of God, and it is accessible when we bathe things in prayer. Turn to your neighbor and say, bathe. Not like they have to bathe. Like, I'm sure they smell great and they do bathe, but like, to, to the point, all right, whatever, I'm moving on. I've got a house. Let me show you what I mean. I don't think we at Greenhouse are prayerless. All right, to be clear, what I think we, we are in danger of, because let me, let me be forthcoming, I am in danger of, is we pray with sprinkles, not baths. Here at Greenhouse, when we do baptism, we don't do baptism like this. We do baptism like this, immersion. I think it's the same vision that we see from Jesus. It's the same vision that we see in Acts when it comes to prayer. You, you can have a situation and you got some, some money. This is lots of fake money. You got some money, and, and what it could be tempted to do is you got an opportunity for a promotion at your job. You got an opportunity to move to another city, to have advancement, and so it's not that we don't pray. We just go like this. Lord, can you go ahead and let me know? Put a little sprinkle on that, and then we take an hour, two hours, three hours, five hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, and we think about it, and we perseverate on it, and we talk to our friends, and we talk to our mom, and we talk to our auntie, and we talk to our mentor, and we talk to our therapist, and we talk to our coach, and then we're like, two more seconds, God, show me. And we do our little Father God sprinkling, and we're like, and then we talk to everybody else, and we, when we actually, we don't do it on purpose, but when we actually examine our lives, we sprinkle things in prayer, and we saturate things in our own abilities. And what it's doing Church, I got so convicted about this personally. I don't mean to do it, but I'm like, man, the amount of times I put a little Father God on something and then just figured it out, and it's gone poorly. And I feel like God's like, son, I'm, I want to help you so bad, but you just, you just gave it a little sprinkle. I hope I'm not getting water on this mic, but I probably am. 
instead of bathing. You got, you're, you're here and you're like, man, I, I'm, I'm praying for a house. How many of you are like, I'm praying for a house right now? And so you're praying and the housing market's crazy and you're like, God, come through. And you're thinking about it and you're talking to your realtor and you're talking to your friend and you're thinking, and then you're like, man, and finally you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't, and so you're like, God, give me wisdom. And then you go on and you keep thinking about it and you keep chewing on and you keep dialoguing instead of taking this and soaking it and drenching it in the power of prayer. My question is, where does our timing line, and it's not some like legalistic, oh man, now I feel horrible. It's just not wise. We have access to the creator God of the cosmos with all the answers and all the wisdom. And we're doing little like, hey God, tell me. I'm doing little, hey God, tell me. And I'm like, Lord, I, I, I want to spend more time praying on something than I do just working on something. If I really want you to move. You're like, John, what does that mean? Here's some specific thoughts. Because I'm like, what, what would it look like for, for me as an individual? What would it look like for us as an organization? What would it look like for us as a church family to bathe things in prayer? Here it is. Have you prayed on it more than you've worked on it? It's a litmus test question. Have you prayed long enough? Have you listened? Have you heard? Have you reached a place in this situation where the yoke feels easy and the burden is light, where peace is high and the joy feels full? Feels full? Have you prayed to the point of indifference? Like Jesus in the garden praying fervently and he, wait, he got to a point where he said, okay, God, I, I told you what I wanted. I really, really mean it. It is true, but, but not my will but your will be done. If you're still anxious, if you're still fretting, if you're still worried, if you're still stuck in anxiety, you probably haven't prayed through it yet. But you can. And I'm praying we would. These disciples, they prayed earnestly. They prayed fervently. They bathed things in prayer. Book of Acts, we love Acts chapter two and the culmination of the sending of God's spirit. Guess what? Most likely they spent at minimum 10 consecutive days, if not more, in prayer. What we see of the people of God and what we even get from Jesus and all of the analogies and illustrations he used about prayer, he said, if, if, if you come to me and you knock, but, and we just read as Americans, knock, like, check, did it. That's not, the, the verb in the original language is if you keep on knocking, seek and you keep on seeking, ask and you keep on asking, and I am not great at this, but I want to be better. And it got me wondering, what, what sort of jailbreak situations does God have in store if we were just willing to lean in a little bit more to his heart, to his mind, to his wisdom? It's what we're trying to do right now as a church. I was up in Gainesville this week, and we we're doing some strategic planning. We feel like God's really given us a heart to reach our state. We're like, Jesus, we want to see your kingdom come right here in Florida. I mean, right now, we're praying for a new microchurch in Palm Beach County and Miami-Dade County. If you're there online and you're in one of those spots, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk with you and start praying together about that. But we're there, and the entire time, we got this team of intercessors. We call them the Navy SEALs because they go in before the ground troops, and they're paving the way in prayer. And so for weeks leading up to this strategic planning meeting where we're going to put our minds and our thoughts and our strategic thinking gear together, we've got these intercessors praying for weeks leading up to it. And then the day of, they're there before we are praying and, and interceding. Some of them took off work for a half day or a whole day, and the entire meeting, three, four-hour meeting, they're just there praying and, and sharing. We feel like God's saying this and, and giving words, and afterwards they're sticking around and they're praying. I'm like, I, I'm, we've seen what happens, America 
to the church when we just work off our abilities. It doesn't last. What if we bathe things in prayer? I'm going to land it here because there's not just an encouragement in this passage. There's also a warning. And the warning is to consider the end. Luke not only makes a point of showing what happens with these disciples as they lean in to focused, ongoing, saturating intercessory prayer, but he also shows us what happens with Herod and the way of Herod. Verse 20, Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They joined together, sought an audience with him, got support of his buddy Blastus, and asked the king to help them because they depended on him for food. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his royal throne and delivered his royal public address, and the people began to shout, this is the voice of a god. Herod finally got what he was longing for, the emphatic approval of people. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's a peppy ending. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. What Luke is doing here is he's painting two paths and he's painting two pictures and he's giving you a crossroads. And he's saying, listen, you could go after the way of this world because the way of Herod has not changed. It just changed names, not in kind. You could go after the way of Herod and you could work and you could strive to get really powerful and really impressive and really significant and you could get all of the status and accolades from heaven and it will, from earth and it will literally like worms eat you alive. Or you could live a life like these ragtag disciples where you say, God, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not talented enough i'm not intelligent enough god if you don't come through this won't happen i need you and maybe not right away but we see it in acts over and over and over he breaks people out of their prisons that we would never be able to break out of on their own the hebrew word is aharit it's this consistent theme in the Hebrew. It literally means the end. And, and in the Proverbs, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the aharit, the end, is the way of death. In the New Testament, it says that, that the wages or the end of sin is death. The end of the path of Herod is always destruction and shame. And while the way of Herod might look impressive on the outside and initially it always ends in destruction and shame, whereas the way of Jesus, which might look unimpressive initially, always leads to life and joy and eternal fulfillment. And the question for us this morning is, which path are you going to walk on? The question for us, if you're watching online, is which path are you going to walk on? Choose today. I'll close with this story, and then we're going to culminate our time together in a final moment of worship. I mentioned about these Herodians and, and one of the most horrible, vile, wicked aspects of Herod the Great, the grandfather of our Herod in this story, is that as he approached the end of his life, desperate for power, willing to do whatever it took to knock out any competitors, he realized that he wasn't exactly well-loved. Because the path where you're going after the love and respect of people rarely brings it. 
And so as he was nearing his deathbed, this is a true story, this is history, as he was nearing the end of his life and he knew it, he, he, he was paranoid that people, instead of mourning his death, would actually celebrate his death. And so this is what he did. He gathered together the elders that were respected and well-loved from all throughout his kingdom and he put them all together in a stadium. And this is what he said, on the hour of my death, execute all of these people so that the entire kingdom will mourn when I die. And he did that. And I start thinking about the way of Jesus. And I start thinking about this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. I start thinking about this one who has all authority and all power and he really actually does. And you juxtapose that with Herod and while Herod at the moment of his death wanted to ensure that others would die, Jesus at the moment of his death wanted to ensure that others could live. And we're presented with a choice. Which, which leader do you want to follow? Which path do you want to follow? Which way do you want to go? Because you could get status and you could get wealth and you could accumulate earth power and go in that obsession, but it never ends where you think it's going to end. Or you could follow this leader who's humble and meek and gentle and lowly of heart. And at the end of his life, he's got like of the thousands of followers, he's got a few with him. And it looks like a waste and it looks like a failure and it looks like it's pointless. And it changes the world. And friend, if you follow Jesus, here's, here's my plea to you. Let's not be those who live prayerless lives. Let's not be those who work off our own abilities. Let's not be those who lean on our own understanding. Let's not be the prayer sprinklers. Let's bathe things in prayer. Let's be per people who lean into the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God. Exhibited through fervent, earnest, ongoing prayer. That at the end of our lives, when people are like, how in the world? We could say, I can tell you very honestly how in the world. Jesus. He was the secret weapon. He was the answer. He was the source. He gave me the ideas. He gave me the strength. He gave me the peace. He gave me the power. Why don't you bow your heads and join me as we pray. If you're here this morning, I've got great news for you. God's love, his mercy his goodness, his grace, it is available for you today in abundance, but I need to let you know that just like with King Herod, God was patient, God was patient, God was patient, and then the patience ended. And the scriptures tell us that there is a time where every knee is going to bow, and there is a time where every single tongue is going to confess, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the King. It's not you, it's not the, it's not the influencer that you really love, it's not some political party, it's Jesus and it's only Jesus. And if you're still alive, if you're still breathing, if you're listening to me this morning in the room or online, here's the great news, there is still hope. But God will not be mocked. He is the most high. And my prayer is that you would not wait until it's too late. You would turn and bow your knee to him this morning. Lord, I'm asking that you would do what only you can do by your spirit. That you would show us our need. Lord, as an, as an individual, I repent of leaning too much on my own understanding of going way more on strategy than I do on wisdom from heaven. I repent, I wanna do differently. As a church family, as an organization, God, we are endeavoring to lean in more fervently, more passionately, in a more focused way to seeking first and seeking most you. 
Maybe you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus and you know you're right with God, but, but you sense a conviction and a tug from the Holy Spirit to not build your life primarily on your own efforts, intellect, or abilities, but to lean into the power of God's spirit and the power of God accessed through prayer. If that's you, you don't have to tell anybody, but I want you to tell God. You can say it out loud. You can say it under your breath. Say, God, I I hear you and I repent. God, I changed my mind. I want to see things like we see in the book of Acts where you move in power. I want to see things like we've seen throughout human history where you move in power. And I know that doesn't come when we get so amazing. It comes when we lean into you because you're so amazing. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, here is the invitation. Choose today who you're going to serve. Is it going to be the Herods of this world, the power and the status and the success and the clout? Or is it going to be the humble servant, King Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords?